What message does this lawsuit send to the BJJ community and other combat schools in general? Well, I think number one, it sends the message that you're not immune from lawsuits. I'm sure lawsuits have happened on smaller scales before, but it just never really came, at least to me, and, and I don't know if you've had the same experience, I've never really heard about BJJ gyms getting sued. So there was sort of this aura, if you will, at least in the jujitsu community, that you could sue a gym, but it just doesn't ever seem to happen. And I think this raises to the forefront that, hey, this can happen. And if it does happen, who knows how big of an award you're going to get. I mean, nobody would have ever thought that you'd get a $46 million award. And I, I recognize the injury was horrific, and I'm not trying to downplay that at all, you know, whatsoever. But I think it raises that. I think it raises to the forefront and the, or the message that needs to be sent is you guys, you gym owners, you instructors and everything, you need to take the safety of your students very seriously. This doesn't just need to be an afterthought. This kind of, oh, we're in fight club mode. Everybody comes here just to fight and beat each other up and whatever, the toughest will survive. Well, that's fine and good, but that's not really a sustainable business model. Welcome to Forever White Belt, the podcast where we dive deep into all things related to jiu-jitsu. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. In this episode, we interview attorney and BJJ practitioner, Chet Palumbo. Chet began practicing law in 2010. He graduated law school in the top 10% of his class and passed the bar exam the first time in the top 5% of all test takers. He's practiced primarily criminal law, both as a defense attorney and prosecutor, and he's conducted over 40 jury trials as lead counsel. He's also a two-stripe purple belt in BJJ and is a certified NRA pistol instructor. During our conversation, we discussed the recent $46 million ruling where a BJJ student in Southern California was temporarily paralyzed and its implications for BJJ academies, investors, and employees. We delve into important legal terminology and how it applies to the BJJ community. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in BJJ law, combat sports safety, and informed consent. Whether you're a BJJ practitioner or an academy owner, this episode will provide you with valuable insights and tips on how to mitigate risk of injury while still providing a challenging training environment. Join us for this thought-provoking and informative episode where Chet breaks down all complex legal concepts into understandable terms and gives us his expert opinion on the legal landscape of BJJ. Disclaimer, content on this channel does not constitute legal advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. For specific questions, please contact a qualified attorney licensed in your state or country. And with that, I give you Chet Palumbo. Chet, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to talk to you. You know, everyone is, I'm sure, has heard in the community, BJJ community has heard about this $46 million award that was a uh, given decided incident with the uh, Del Mar Academy in Southern California, where uh, a individual student or I'm not sure if it was a student or visiting student or what was uh, paralyzed for a while. I'm really interested in the legal perspective on it. And Chet, I know you bring a lot of uh, information, probably some of the best information I've seen online on the matter. Uh, you guys got to check out his uh, YouTube channel, the, the, uh, combative lawyer. And uh, he has a great three-part series. It's fantastic. Chet, uh, can you give us uh, some of your background? Yeah, sure. So I've been a lawyer since 2010. I have practiced in a number of states, but I've done pretty much exclusively criminal defense law. I've been a prosecutor and a uh, defense attorney. I uh, started jujitsu in 2011. Uh, I'm a purple belt right now. I'm also a um, combative's green belt. Uh, it's kind of a new system that people have come up with this whole combatives system. So a lot of shooting, force on force, weapons-based grappling, stuff like that. And so I decided a few months ago to try to combine those two passions of the law and fighting combatives and martial arts to start the combative lawyer channel to talk about these issues, kind of self-defense, fighting everything, but through the lens of the law. So like a perfect perspective for this, this topic, I'm very interested on your overview of this matter without giving away everything that we're going to talk about in the show, just how your sure. perspective of the incident has sort of evolved from the breaking news to 
today as of this recording, which is April 13th. Because I know at first I was like, when I first saw the thing, I was like inflamed, you know, because that's what social media sort of does. And uh, and then as I more sort of learned about it, my perspective changed as well. Yeah, I would say that when I first heard about it, I was very dismissive of the validity of the award. As I've learned a little bit more about the specific incident, about some of the statements that were made, I'm a little bit more open to it. And when I say open to it, I mean, I could be open to a jury verdict. With that said, I do have some specific issues or concerns with the jury verdict and the reason that I don't necessarily trust the verdict at this point. First of all, top of mind for Academy owners, just to get this sort of ball going, is the concept of waivers. Can you just talk about waivers in general? So a waiver is a written document that waives a claim of negligence against an owner, an operator, or an agent of some sort of entity. So there are certain legal concepts that are oftentimes included in waivers, but they exist outside the waiver, notwithstanding the waiver. What I mean is something called, let's say, assumption of risk. If you and I are doing an activity that is inherently dangerous or has inherent obvious risks to it, we don't need a written document to have the person or entity that's in charge protect from the concept of assumption of risk. So assumption of risk is one particular defense to a claim of negligence. A separate defense to the claim of negligence would be a specific waiver, which means I acknowledge that negligence may exist in the future. And as a condition of my participation in this activity, I'm going to go ahead and waive any claim of negligence against the entity or its employees or agents or that sort of thing. Hmm. The important thing to know about a waiver is you cannot waive intentional torts. So when I say tort, a tort is anything that's not a crime, but it's a wrong from a person to person. Battery, negligence, false imprisonment, all those are subsumed under the, under the concept of torts. You cannot waive a claim for battery or gross negligence, but you can waive negligence. So your listeners understanding the difference between gross negligence and negligence is pretty important because some, some of these issues come down to that. Okay, good. We'll, we'll break out into negligence as another topic I definitely want to deep dive into. Okay. So I'm an academy owner. I've got a waiver. I think I'm, I'm covered. Is that a fallacy or? No, I mean, as long as the waiver is, is valid and that's going to be, you know, state to state, you want to have a lawyer licensed in your state to know the, the specific laws, to know if there's certain things from a policy standpoint or statutory standpoint that you may not be able to, uh, you know, for example, I'll give you an example. Sometimes in waivers, they will have provisions that subject claims to binding arbitration, which arbitration is sort of a what they call an alternative dispute resolution. It's very informal. It's like, hey, let's kind of solve this informally without going to court, without doing all that sort of thing. A lot of waivers will have or attempt to have binding arbitration clauses. However, some states prohibit binding arbitration. So it's important to know in your state if your state prohibits binding arbitration. I will say that typically binding arbitration is only prohibited for waivers against doctors and lawyers. Prohibition rarely extends to other occupations. But I wouldn't be surprised in California, a state that is very protective of consumers, very protective of, you know, the little guys, so to speak, that they might have something like that. So just once again, a reason to make sure that you know your state law uh, when drafting those waivers. That, that's a fascinating topic right there, because I'm sure I've heard of several academies, typically these BJJ academies, oftentimes, you know, not the big ones, are just run by some guy or woman. And uh, what they're doing is they're going online, they're just or they're asking their buddy of another academy for a waiver, you know, and they just kind of copy and sort of slap it on. And they use it as their own. I'm kind of giving you a softball here. But is that a smart thing to do? No, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's small investment, you know, a couple hundred dollars to, you know, contact a local attorney that does business transactions and say, Hey, could you take a look at this waiver? Could you draft something up for me? It's a small investment, but it, it could end up being very useful down the road. Why is it so hard to sue an academy when one gets injured there? 
It's not necessarily hard to sue, it's hard to recover. Probably what you're asking is, is it difficult to actually get all the way to a judgment? Because that's one of the complaints that a lot of people have with our legal system is it's, it's incredibly easy to sue somebody and you can probably get down the road a little bit. But the reason it's difficult and the reason this case is so baffling is because there is a certain level of, even with a bad waiver, an assumption of risk when you're doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or when you're doing Muay Thai or when you're doing any kind of combat sports, there's just such an obvious inherent risk to that that so rarely is an injury going to be outside the scope of the type of injury that you assumed the risk of. So your typical, you know, I've got a my shoulder is partially torn, my knee is partially torn kind of things. I mean, that happens, right, in Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Another reason that makes it difficult is oftentimes the people that injure you are not employees but our participants. You can't necessarily, you can't sue a gym for an injury caused by a student that's not an employee unless the gym has been put on notice that that person is dangerous and has failed to take reasonable steps to re remedy that. What happens if uh, I don't sign a waiver and I'm just training at the gym? Because, you know, the enforcement of that kind of thing at, at Academy sometimes isn't the strictest thing. Right. So if you don't sign a waiver, you haven't waived negligence, but you still have the assumption of risk doctrine that could protect the gym in the event that there was an injury. But it's it's in the law. You have to be ve we're very specific on what type of claim we're talking about and their specific defenses to each claim. So in that kind of situation, if you were injured and you sued, yes, you could go after them for negligence, but they could turn around and say, hey, you know, you assumed this risk. So then you kind of get into an argument about, okay, well, did I assume the risk of negligence or did I just assume the risk of natural injuries that tend to occur when participating in the sport? And just to put it out there, people, I don't want to sue academies, okay? I'm just playing devil's advocate <laughs> here, all right? Um, but, uh, hey, I didn't know. I was a beginner, you know, and I'm here and I got hurt. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to take you to court. And, and I know the answer to so many of these questions, it depends, because there's a myriad of uh, situations and, and legal sort of angles to this. So your, your take on that scenario. Yeah, so if someone's a beginner, and I have argued this on my page, and I'll continue to stand by this, I think someone's level of experience is absolutely relevant to these types of claims. I've gotten a lot of pushback from listeners and a lot of comments. Oh, the experience of the guy doesn't matter, doesn't matter. I will respectfully but vehemently uh, disagree with that. If you're an instructor and you have a guy, it's his first week or his first month, you have to coddle him a lot more in terms of, okay, you're just going to cut him loose and let him roll. Okay, that's fine. But maybe make sure that he doesn't roll, he or she does not roll with the people that are known to be a little bit more aggressive. Or at least take steps to let the other people that they're rolling with know hey, this is this guy's first week and he doesn't have any prior wrestling experience. He doesn't have any prior, you know, this way you're not putting him or her into a situation where the risk of injury becomes unreasonable. I'm immediately thinking, you know, hey, this guy's arms are, regardless of, of belt rank of the, uh, you know, the person who was injured, I was put in such a position that it was all upon the other person that was applying gotcha. it, in this case, a black belt. Okay. And are we going to assume that the black belt is an owner or employee of the entity? Well, that's, okay. that's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah. How about uh, both scenarios? Yeah, if it's not an employee, then, I mean, your claim is against the fellow student. Mm. Unless, like I said, this the academy had been put on notice that this person was injuring people unreasonably in the past. A person rolling and hurting people can become a dangerous condition in the eyes of the law, no different than a store that allows a dangerous condition of a puddle on the floor, and that's where we get those that slip and fall liability. Can you explain intentional misconduct? Yeah, intentional would be like a battery, assault, false imprisonment, and where you get into that kind of situation would be somebody actually hits you or punches you at the gym, but not part of sparring. I'll give you an example. Uh, it's it's more comical than anything, but there was a time I was, you know, purple belt at the time. I was rolling with another purple belt. We went inverted and I, I got an arm bar on him and he couldn't tap quite fast enough. And it was very unintentional that I overextended it, but he was very upset. He stood up and he pushed me. Well, even though we were literally just grappling and in a combat type of 
scenario, after the round is over, standing up and pushing someone, even though that's technically less violent, that's outside the scope of what we agreed to do as training partners. So pushing or shoving someone would be technically the intentional tort of battery and or assault. Now, the, he didn't, we wasn't an employee, he was just another student, but the analysis would go, okay, if I signed a waiver, that waiver I could not waive liability for intentional misconduct, like someone pushing or shoving you. Contrast that with negligence. Negligence is, I absolutely did not mean for this outcome to happen, but through my oversight, through my inadvertence that I should have been able to mitigate, I did cause harm to somebody. So another scenario would be something like um, he doesn't tap or is unable to tap, and then he's thinking to himself or potentially tell someone else, hey, I'm going to do this back to him. I'm going to overextend his arm. And that's a really interesting question is, you know, we're roll if we're rolling and he intentionally cranks the arm past the point where I tap, then yes, the, the because up until when I tap, so you and I are rolling, we have consent we we have provided implied and expressed consent to do grappling with each other to try to apply chokes to try to apply joint locks unless and until one person either verbally or physically taps at that point in time the consent for the continued aggression is revoked that's the way it would look in the eyes of the law is once i tap or once you tap i no longer have your consent to continue to crank the armbar to continue to crank the americana and if, I, if you tap and then I continue to crank and I hurt you, the question then becomes, was it intentional or unintentional? If it was intentional, it's a battery. If it was unintentional, we then move into the realm of negligence. And then if it's ne whether it's negligence or not depends on, was it one of those? And we've all been there. Got it got tight super fast. Like Americanas are known for that, right? Americanas get tight really, really fast. That guy goes to crank it. You yell tap, but it's almost contemporaneous with the with the cranking to the point where there was maybe a millisecond or a half a second after he heard you that before he let go. I think you're going to have a hard time making a claim for negligence because there was just such a split second for them to react. But that's that's the legal analysis. They're kind of toggling between an intentional act of battery and negligence. Can you deep dive sort of into assumptions of risk? What, what does that mean? When you do something, an activity, you know, any, anything, and a risk is so obvious to an average and reasonable person, you are said to have done this knowing that this is going to happen. But you look at certain injuries and then the question becomes, was this outside the scope of the type of risk that you assumed? And that's where we get a little bit into that with this, that $46 million case is, hmm. you know, was this the type of thing that he could have assumed the risk to? Combat sports is a perfect example. I mean, you, you know, we sign up for a boxing class, we're sparring, you catch me in the eye and I get a bruise and kind of a swollen eye. I can't come after you for that. I mean, that's I've completely assumed the risk by voluntarily participating not only in the class but in the in the sparring section. There's a ton of example any activity, you know, where there's just certain things that just tend to happen part and parcel with that activity. Let's uh, sort of deep dive into this other thing that you've been sort of alluding to or mentioning straight up to is uh, the, the notion of dangerous conditions. You mentioned uh, the student who injures multiple students on the regular. And does that pose a risk for the academy owner? And please, and please talk about dangerous conditions in general in the eyes of the law. Yeah, absolutely. So business owners have a duty to make their premises safe for customers. When you, and we, this is talking about the realm of what's called premises liability. Your status when you are on someone else's property, the level of care that they owe to you depends on the nature of your business there. So a social guest is owed a lesser degree of care than what they call a business invitee, which means I'm open for business and you are a customer or a potential customer coming into my business. I owe the highest degree of care to you as a business invitee. If you come over to my house for dinner, for example, my only duty to you is if I know for a fact there's some dangerous condition, I have to warn you about it. So you say, hey, I'm going to use the restroom. Hey, no problem. Hey, we just got construction and there's a huge hole in the hallway leading to the bathroom. Please be careful, right? I owe you that duty. And if I don't do that and you fell into the hole, you could make a claim against my homeowner's policy. 
The lowest level of care is a trespasser. And we can we, we kind of that makes sense, right? From a policy standpoint, if somebody trespasses on your property, you don't have to warn them of dangerous conditions. What you can't do is you can't create dangerous conditions just for the trespasser. So there's sort of three tiers of duty of care that you owe. So when we're talking about a person at a gym, that's a business invitee. So the highest level of care is owed to them. They, the property owner has a duty to make safe the premises for a business invitee in the context of a jiu-jitsu gym. If you have somebody, some former wrestler, some aspiring MMA fighter, or maybe just some guy with a, with a chip on his shoulder who is rolling hard with everyone, is cranking submissions, is just going to town on heel hooks and, and is injuring people, once the gym learns of this, once the gym learns that, hey, Billy Bob over here is hurting people on a regular basis and, can, and it doesn't seem to be an isolated thing, it appears to be dangerous for your other customers to roll with him. They are now aware of a dangerous condition and they have a duty to make that safe. And that's either talk to him or kick him out of the gym. But even if they talk to him, if he continues to do it, they're still on the hook. The way I explained it in, in, in one of my videos was in dog bite liability, they say every dog gets their first bite. So you're not on the hook if your dog bites somebody because you couldn't possibly know that the dog was gonna bite somebody or whatever. Once that dog bites a person though, if they go out and bite another person, you're on the hook for that. Same thing with people at the gym. Once that dog bites somebody and you know about that, you have a hard decision to make and nobody wants to hurt feelings and nobody wants to, you know, the jujitsu community is small, but you have a hard decision to make to sit down with this person and say, look, you've created uh, a liability issue for us here. The way that you train, if you can't drastically change your training habits, we're going to unfortunately and regrettably have to ask you to leave. And that's that's something that, biz that business owners, that gym owners need to take very seriously. And, you know, I've been part of a few of those conversations in gyms I've been at because, you know, my job, the, sometimes the instructors come up to me and talk to me about it. And that's what I tell them. I say, look, this sucks and nobody wants to create waves and hurt people's feelings. But you got four people, all white belts that have been injured by this guy. It's just going to take that one 14-year-old to come in here, get hurt, and their parents are going to sue the, the crap out of you. <laughs> So in the eyes of the law, it, it, what I'm hearing is that a pattern's been established. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That you that you know as the business owner, you now cannot claim ignorance at this point. Wow. So that you are aware of. I see. Yeah. What I'm hearing in my head is the community saying, hey, you know, this is what it is. You're watering it down. You know, there's, I mean, it's such a tightrope for academy owners to walk. Yeah, it is tough. I mean... There's a culture in the jiu-jitsu community, and sometimes that culture does not align with the requirements of the law. And, you know, we want to be tough. Like, we want to be known as the gym that rolls hard, and we got all the tough guys that win the, the tournaments and everything. And, and, you know, to do that, you've got you to gotta roll hard. Look, I'm sure... I'm sure you've had injuries before. I've had injuries like it's it's... That's just, that's just part of it. And you definitely have to ask yourself as a gym owner... You know, what type of culture do I want to create? And you definitely have to walk that type rope, tight rope of being safe, but also being tough. And you can be tough. Look, if you've got two tough guys and they roll hard, pair them together. You know, it's like they're not going to they're not the kind of people that are going to sue each other. And th that tough guy that hurts other people. Well, he's got kind of a, a stronger assumption of risk argument for him. But I think the important thing is just to make sure that you're not putting people with other people that are likely to hurt them. I mean, this is your livelihood on the line, I guess, to the Academy, right? Owner, right? I mean, Absolutely. is it worth it? That's your roll of the dice. That's very, that's a very tough sort of situation for you to have to, to hammer out. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt and check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring, teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. Another thing I want to talk to you about was this notion of, uh, I believe it's called vicarious liability. If you could deep dive into that. And also, can you touch on the topic of a full-time employee 
instructor versus a contractor instructor or otherwise employee at the gym? And how does that relate? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, vicarious liability is the legal concept that one person or entity is legally responsible for the acts or omissions of another person. In the context of employment, you have the legal doctrine of what's called respondeat superior, which is a Latin phrase meaning the superior or the, the boss answers for the actions or omissions of employees. So anytime a, a cashier, a Walmart employee, a McDonald's employee, any of these people don't clean up a spill and you get this slip and fall case, right? Who gets named in the lawsuit? Well, it's not the cashier. It's McDonald's Corporation. It's Walmart. Their response was the corporate entity. They are responsible for the acts and omissions of their employees when the employees are acting within the scope of their employment. And obviously it makes sense, right? They have the money. I mean, that makes sense. You're not going to, who's going to sue some McDonald's employee that makes 10 bucks an hour or whatever. That doesn't make any sense. So you're going to sue the boss. It's important to know though, that that doesn't apply if the employee is acting outside the scope of their employment. So this is where you get into tricky territory when you have a gym owner or any other employee, let's say, that is accused of sexual misconduct with another student. And then they want to sue the gym because a lot of times the gym has more money, has deeper pockets than the you know 21-year-old assistant instructor. Mm-hmm. But then the question becomes, okay, but that wasn't part of his job. You know, like him, him doing this sexual misconduct, like that had nothing to do with his work. And then you get into, okay, was it at the gym? Was it during gym hours? Then you get into things like negligent hiring, negligent retainment. Did they know that he had a propensity for doing this? It gets into a lot of crazy things, but that's essentially what vicarious liability is. And it doesn't just work up and down. It works laterally. If you and I are business partners, unless we have what's called a limited partnership, an LLP, Mm-hmm. You and I are responsible for the act, acts and omissions of our partners. So, you know, if you've got your gym owner, right, and you're a co-owner with the gym, you and another buddy, you guys decide to start a gym, you're equal partners, and you set it up as a regular partnership, you're going to be liable if your partner injures someone, you'll be liable, and then vice versa. Interesting. So if I was a passive investor, but I was set up as like a co-owner, I could be on the hook. So that's a good that's a good question. A lot of states will have statutory schemes that limit the liability of investors. Um, unless you're, especially if you're talking about like, like a silent partner or something like that, there are limitations for that. It's usually what they would refer to as like a managing partner of a corporation or something like that. But but yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a very state-specific question. So I wouldn't want to say definitively yes or no, but... Because I've looked into this because you know I've made investments or uh, looked into it for uh, employment relationships for my wife, uh, but just being considered a partner in a firm or a practice or something like that, you're not necessarily going to to have liability for all other partners. But in a traditional like two partner man where both are managing the business, uh, yeah, you're going to be on the hook unless you organize it in a certain way. So. Let's look on the other end of it then. What I found very interesting is that the 21-year-old employee or part-time you know, instructor or something like that, or let's say he's a, a contractor as well, they could be on the hook as well, depending on their potential role if this place is found guilty for something. Yeah, yeah the whole uh, independent contractor thing, very hotly litigated topic because everyone's really quick to label someone an independent contractor. Why? Because you don't want to pay their payroll taxes, plain and simple. Whether you're designated or called an independent contractor is only one factor out of, I don't know, last time I looked at it, maybe five, six, or seven factors that a court will look at to determine if in the eyes of the law, you're considered an independent contractor. So you may be a 1098 employee of somewhere for five years and never an issue. It's never been audited by the IRS or anything. No one's ever questioned your independent contractor status. But a vicarious liability issue comes up, and all of a sudden the, the gym wants to claim, oh, he's not an employee, he's a, he's a 1098. The other side's going to go, no, no, we're, we're, we're going to look to certain things. One of the things that they look at in determining whether someone is truly an independent contractor is whether the owner 
has any sort of supervisory authority and has the right to manage the day-to-day operations of that person. So basically what the law says is if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. We don't care what you call it. We don't care that you call it an independent contractor. If you tell him you better be there at 5 o'clock for the 5.30 class, you're going to teach this, this, and this. This is how you tie your belt. This is how we do promotions. This is how we do everything. And that person is literally just there and and they have no autonomy over what they do. You're going to have a hard time uh, making a claim that it's truly an independent contractor. Wow. So, oof, that's a, that's a, that's spooky. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's say I am that um, full FTE, full-time employee at the academy. I'm that 20-year-old kid or whatever. And I'm seeing gross negligence or things that are going really bad within the academy. How do I protect myself? Because knowing now that I could be on the hook for this kind of thing as well. Yeah. If you're, if they're calling you a 1090 uh, or an independent contractor, and you see things going on, what I can tell you is vicarious liability doesn't go up. So what I mean is if you're an independent contractor and you're doing everything right, but you see the owner is doing some things that could subject to liability, I wouldn't be too concerned because they're, they're not going to go down. Vicarious liability only goes from the employee up. It doesn't work the other way around. I, I get injured. I'm, I'm going to sue everyone at this academy. Yeah, so you can you certainly be named in a lawsuit. If you did something as the part-time instructor, sure, you might get named in the lawsuit. That's where you'd have to defend yourself. I don't think it would be a bad idea to look into liability insurance for yourself. You're an instructor and you and and, and your boss or the gym is trying to call you an independent contractor. That's fine. What I would do is I would form an LLC just for my martial arts teaching. Then you gotta get into a talk on how to make sure the LLC is valid. You've got a separate business checking account for for that LLC, a federal EIN, employment identification number, that sort of thing. You set up your LLC, the gym pays the LLC, and your LLC then goes out and gets liability insurance. So you're the 21-year-old instructor, I'm a gym owner, somebody gets hurt while you're teaching a class, they sue you, you go, hey, I was acting within the scope of my LLC, my, that individual LLC that was employed by the gym. So if you want to sue me, that's fine, but you've got to sue my LLC, number one. Then you let your insurance carrier know. Then that they, they spring into action and they, they provide your legal defense and they have policy limits, hopefully 500000 or a million for policy limits. But you also have the idea that if you're a truly a valid LLC, they can only go after LLC assets. So the assets that are in the checking account, whatever equipment is owned by the LLC, can't go after your personal vehicle, can't go after your, your family home with your spouse. That is protected by the corporate shield of the LLC. Mm. Wow. Now, assuming I, I am that assistant instructor or something like that, I don't have an LLC. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Does it help to create a paper trail, if you will, or a documentation trail? Like, I've sent emails to my boss, the academy owner. Hey, this is going on. This this looks dangerous to me. That kind of thing. Would the court look at that in any type of way, do you think? They would certainly look at it for prosecuting the case against the owner. That would be more relevant for that. If they're making a claim against you, as the assistant instructor, you either did it or you didn't do it. If you're saying, hey, this guy keeps showing up and he's injuring people, what do I do? And you're not getting any support and you're not getting any response, but you continue to let that guy train, you continue to do that, honestly, it's only gonna hurt you because the the, the court's gonna look at it and go, you knew this was a problem. You kept sending emails up the chain. They never responded. Well, it's your class. You're the instructor. It was your responsibility to tell them, hey, you can't train her anymore as long as I'm teaching. There seems to almost be a danger in potentially not promoting an individual, right? Or what sometimes we'll call sandbagging. Now, you kind of touched on it and sort of, I guess this goes into the experience as well, but, but can you talk about this danger potentially of not promoting someone by the owner? This is groundbreaking this concept of them using the belt rank to prosecute their case, but then not being allowed to talk about his specific experience level. That I think is one of the major problems in the case. To me, it's a huge flaw in logic to say, we're allowed to call someone a white belt. We're allowed to 
talk about what it means to be a white belt. Henner Gracie even used the phrase, I think in one of his either depositions or testimony, a white belt is someone with little to no experience. You let the jury hear that. The jury hears this person was a white belt. The jury hears, oh, there goes white, blue, purple, brown, black. You know, that's what a white belt is. But for the judge to not think that you have then opened the door to talk about the specific experience level of that white belt, I think is absolutely ridiculous. I vehemently disagree with that evidentiary ruling. I think it's going to be a huge issue on appeal. I think that's that's absolutely crazy because it's either, right, like if experience doesn't matter, then his belt doesn't matter. If it truly doesn't matter how much experience he had, then what's the relevance of saying he's a white belt? I mean, my thought is you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to say, okay, experience doesn't matter, okay, whatever, then the jury doesn't need to hear anything about him being a white belt. That's fine. But if you want to talk about him being a white belt, well, that's fine, but then we're going to talk about how far along he was in that white belt journey. How close to blue belt was he, if, if it's relevant. Because the only evidence that needs to come in is evidence that's relevant. And if a particular piece of evidence or the exclusion of evidence puts another piece of evidence out of context, it becomes what's known as highly and unduly prejudicial, and then it should be excluded. So not putting in context how much experience he has then causes his belt rank to be confusing and misleading to the jury. That's my opinion. You know, I've argued before the belt system is so subjective. Right. It just is. And every coach is kind of making it up. You know, it's a personal decision in terms of like you hear some academies say everyone deserves, you know, after X amount of time, certain belts. Some are very much against that. Some people say uh, it's purely meritocracy. This person should be able to beat everyone in the, you know, in the academy in order to level up to this to this next thing. So it gets really vague. Can you touch upon also um, the sandbagging topic as well And, and your thoughts on the belt system in general? Because it is so vague. It's hard to even imagine that a court would base in something that yeah. that's so not quantitative. Yeah, I mean, I've had discussions on sandbagging before, and I've had a disagreement where someone said that they think that true belts should be determined by the competition scene and not just the casual hobbyist, because they're leading the way and they're at the cutting edge of the sport and everything. And I disagree with that. And the reason I disagree with that is I believe that, right, I've heard it in my early days of training, I've heard people say like, hey, when you're, you know, if we promote you to blue belt, then that means we want you to be able to go out and be competitive against other blue belts in tournaments and beat a majority of blue belts at other gyms and everything. Same thing with purple, same thing with brown. Well, to me, that causes a type of belt inflation, right? And what I mean by that is if it's you, me, and one other guy, three of us in a room in isolation, We all want our promotion, we're all white belts, and we all want to be promoted to blue belt. And each person individually is told, you can't get your blue belt until you can beat the other guys. Then none of us are ever getting our belt because we're moving up together. We're all getting better at the same time. So if we have this idea that you have to be able to go out at tournaments and win or at least come close to winning or whatever before you get that next belt, then just slowly over time, the standard for each belt is going to rise and rise and rise and rise to the point where it's so so far detached from what the original origins were. That's my thought on, you know, at least sandbagging. I think I also I, I really hate sandbagging because skill level is an attribute, an attribute just like size, an attribute like strength, an attribute like gender. It's no different Then going into a tournament, and me, I'm 205 pounds, going, you know what? I feel like signing up for the 120-pound female division. That's not the division that I belong in. But the fact of, of my gender, my weight, these things can be objectively verified. That doesn't happen. But what can't be objectively verified is my skill level. So that's where the sandbagging comes in, and I think that it's wrong. I think it's immoral. If I'm just killing every single person at Blue Belt and I'm, I'm winning the Pan Ams, and I don't, I'd be interested to hear your point on this. When I hear people say this guy or this girl is number one in the world at Blue Belt or number one in the world at Purple Belt, my thought is, okay, well, that just means I need promoted. Like, that's, like that's, that's, that's what, that, I mean, there, there comes a point where when do you stop saying I'm a seven-time undefeated Pan Am Purple Belt and it's like, okay, dude, like you just, you need to be a brown belt. 
I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's my viewpoint on it. Yeah, yeah. No, the the way I look at it oftentimes too is that it it's, it is very subjective. Is this thing and I always use the example of uh I'm sorry listeners, I'm going to do it again. Uh Kolobate of Art of Jiu-Jitsu who is a phenom, right? You kid, he's been basically doing this since he was a baby essentially, right? And he's this new generation of inc- incredible uh athletes. At blue belt, he was crushing black belts like crazy and then i would hear people going ah that black belt ha ha he was beat by a blue belt you know and uh, and then it makes it makes you think is he really a blue belt or is this the limitations of some particular rule set you know ibjjf capping minors at a certain belt level you know for a while and then you and then you have to ask yourself this is this is not quantitative this isn't like something we can actually measure you know this is sort of a, a sort of ethereal type of concept in a way you know uh, that we that kind of needs to sort of flow we kind of float around but then we put these uh definitive meanings on it i'm a blue belt i'm a purple belt i should be able to do this and that but it's it's really cultural it seems like depending on the academy that's kind of the way i look at it but that's what makes it so fascinating that now belt colors can be taken into a legal context yeah i never i never would have thought that before this case let's talk about negligence in your video you talk about like these sort of four distinctions of negligence one called a uh, duty the other one called breach the other one is uh causation and one being gross gross negligence which we also touched on uh can you sort of break down each of those yeah sure yeah just to uh kind of clarify so we've got gross negligence is a higher level of negligence uh so it's a little bit different but what i was talking about was the four elements of negligence, duty, breach, causation, and damages. And so you have to have all of those in order to be successful in a claim uh, for negligence. So we look at duty, right? What is, we'll, we'll look at things like medical malpractice as an example. All right. It's, it's a very, it's, you study that a lot in law school. All right. Well, what's the duty there? Well, I go to a doctor, they agree to treat me. They do treat me. They owe the duty that a doctor owes to a patient. If I go and I sit in the waiting room of a doctor's office or an urgent care because I am having chest pain and before I'm ever seen, I leave. And then a few days later I die and I say, oh, you guys didn't treat me. They had, at that point in time, no doctor had a duty to me. I had not yet established a doctor-patient relationship with anyone. So there's no duty. As a car driver, I owe a duty to other drivers on the road to operate my car safely. So the reason I give that example is a lot of a lot of personal injury claims are auto accident. You know, we all know that. So we have you have to establish that this person owed me some type of duty. I'm a customer at a gym. I am a business invitee, like we talked about earlier. They owe me the duty to create a safe place for me to come and do jujitsu. So that's step one. That's the first element. Duty. Then we get into breach. Did the person's conduct fall below an objective standard of reasonableness? Within the medical field for medical malpractice, it's did the doctor's conduct fall below an objective standard for the uh, standard of care in their specialty? So even in that context, we're seeing family practice doctors are treated differently than a neurosurgeon, right? If we're talking about a head problem, the neurosurgeon is going to be judged a lot more strictly than a family doctor. If I go to a family doctor visit and I say, I've been having kind of a headache and blah, 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 and maybe they miss something, right? Whether or not they breached that duty is going to be judged with a lot more leniency than if I was sitting in the office of a neurologist or a neurosurgeon because they're expected to have a higher degree of, of care. So just some e- examples of breach. So let's say we establish duty, we establish breach, right? Okay, yes, they fell below the objective level of care. Now we talk about causation. Did that breach of the duty did that cause damages? So we can't really talk about causation without damages. It's kind of weird the way it's set up, but damages is really easy. Was, was there some sort of harm? Was there some sort of injury? That's pretty straightforward. So then we take a step back and we go, okay, were, were these damages caused by the breach of the duty? And within causation, we have actual and proximate. These are the two, if you're doing a, you know, a bar exam outline, you get down to causation. It goes into two bifurcated branches, proximate and actual cause. Really good example is 
So you ask the hotel to give you a wake-up call in the morning, and they forget to do that. And so you're running about 15 minutes late getting to where you need to be. And you're behind a truck, and that truck, a rock flies out of the back, smashes your windshield, causes all kinds of damage. So now you want to sue. You want to sue the, the hotel because if you hadn't been at that road at that particular point in time, 15 minutes late, you wouldn't have been hit by the, the, the rock. You can establish actual causation because you being late actually caused that. You can't establish proximate causation. Proximate causation says, is the injury that I sustained, was that a foreseeable type of injury from my conduct or omission? Proximate cause, think about it this way, actual causation is a requirement, proximate causation is a limitation. Proximate causation says, as a policy, we don't want just an absolute massive can of worms of liability to be opened because someone does this little tiny inconsequential thing. And you would say, you know what? Me forgetting to give you a call in the morning to wake you up, it was in no way, shape, or form foreseeable that a rock would, because of that, a rock would fly out of a truck and smash your windshield. And this is where I think the conversation needs to come to in asking ourselves, with me trying to take your back and pin your arm, is it foreseeable that it's not just going to cause a neck crank type thing or a discomfort in the head, but it was going to cause a catastrophic disruption of the central nervous system leading to quadriplegia. And I think that's where, you know, we need to be, you know, respectful of our, our, our friends and colleagues and everybody, you know, be respectful of other people's opinions and everything, but recognize that reasonable minds can differ on whether or not that was a foreseeable outcome. Gross negligence can be summed up by simply saying it's the same thing as negligence, but it's more severe. Instead of, oops, I messed up, oops, I didn't exercise enough care, gross negligence is there was a risk that I knew about that I intentionally ignored that risk, and I did something anyway. So it's, it's basically worse. It's one step away from an intentional act. It's you were being, gross negligence is oftentimes uh, used interchangeably with recklessness. Like you were being downright reckless with this. You know, I, I threw a rock into a crowded, a, a crowd of people and then someone got hurt. Okay, well, there's no way you didn't know somebody was going to get hurt by throwing a rock into a crowd of people. Versus intentional would be something like, there's Chet, I'm going to throw a rock at Chet's head. Absolutely. That's exactly right. You're 100% exactly hmm. right. So another thing I want to touch on too is, I don't know if it's the finality or endpoint of this type of uh, situation scenario would be awards and things like uh, punitive damages. Can you deep dive into awards, punitive damages? Yeah, yeah. So you have different types of awards for personal injury, torts. You've got your uh, medical expenses. You've got pain and suffering. You've got loss of consortium. Uh, loss of consortium is where you lose intimacy with a, uh, a partner, spouse, whatever the case may be. In this case, what was interesting, what was surprising to me is only eight and a half million dollars of that award was medical expenses. Wow. All the rest of it was past and then future pain and suffering. No punitive damages were awarded. Punitive damages is a damage, it, which is just money. That's lawyer speak for just a money award, simply to punish the wrongdoer. It is not uh, compensatory damages, is to say, hey, I'm compensating you for your loss. So you've got eight and a half million dollars of medical expenses. Okay, we're awarding eight and a half million for this. We've got 30 some million dollars in pain and suffering. We're going to compensate you for that. But because we find your conduct so reprehensible, we're going to award punitive damages, which is simply to punish you for what you're doing. Punitive damages are only awarded when gross negligence or an intentional conduct is found. So the absence of punitive damages, to me, signals that the jury did not find gross negligence. Could punitive damages then also be perhaps motivated in a way to close down the facility? They're maybe not saying it outright, but this is place is dangerous or, or something is an insinuation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, one of the things juries are told to consider for a punitive damage award is that it is a damage that is sufficient to prevent this type of injury from happening again. And in that case, when you are talking about punitive damages, the financial resources of the defendant becomes relevant. And they may look at it and say, hey, 
if we award X number of dollars, this is going to guarantee one way or another that this person's not going to be in a position to cause this type of injury again. What message does this lawsuit send to the BJJ community and other combat schools in general? Well, I think number one, it sends the message that you're not immune from lawsuits. I'm sure lawsuits have happened on smaller scales before, but it just never really came, at least to me, and, and I don't know if you've had the same experience, I've never really heard about BJJ gyms getting sued. So there was sort of this aura, if you will, at least in the jujitsu community, that you could sue a gym, but it just doesn't ever seem to happen. And I think this raises to the forefront that, hey, this can happen. And if it does happen, who knows how big of an award you're going to get. I mean, nobody would have ever thought that you'd get a $46 million award. And I, I recognize the injury was horrific, and I'm not trying to downplay that at all, you know, whatsoever. But I think it raises that. I think it raises to the forefront and the, or the message that needs to be sent is you guys, you gym owners, you instructors and everything, you need to take the safety of your students very seriously. This doesn't just need to be an afterthought. This kind of, oh, we're in fight club mode. Everybody comes here just to fight and beat each other up and whatever, the toughest will survive. Well, that's fine and good, but that's not really a sustainable business model. How can combat sports schools, academies, BJJ academies, ensure the, the safety of their students while still providing a challenging training environment? Oh, that's a great question. I, I Obviously, number one, good waivers in place, etiquette being reinforced, whether it be at the beginning of class, after class, pulling people aside. If you see someone start to be a little bit aggressive, having a culture where it is okay to just gently, quietly pull someone aside and say, hey man, kind of rolling kind of hard, just like, you know, be careful with this. Um, saw you cranking on that heel hook kind of hard like that. That could lead to some injury. So we want to, you know, it, nipping things in the bud is what I'm trying to get at. Is not letting things get to the point where there is some catastrophic injury but just a culture that reinforces that it's okay to enact quality control measures and for owners and instructors to really take ownership of what happens on the mat. Yeah, because I'm sure the academy owners are going to want to, and employees are going to ask straight up, you know, how can we mitigate this, you know, their risk and the risk of injury to their students too, you know? I think it comes down to number one, making sure your waivers are good and create just culture. I think culture is a big thing, making sure that the culture is such that people are safe, people, we're not glorifying the tough guy who rolls really hard and hurts everybody. You know, we're, we're understanding that, look, for 99.9% .9 of us, we're going to work the next day. We have families, like we, we want to train for the rest of our lives. And if we're rolling super hard and cranking on stuff and doing things dangerously, it's, it's not good for anybody. Now, do you think there's a risk of, I hate to say it, someone seeing this as like, wow, I can make $46 million out of this kind of thing. And it might, might not be $46 million. It might be 10, might be five. You right. know, that's, that's a ton of money. Do you see potential of this risk yeah. happening? I think getting a lot of money is hard. I think you are still going to typically, and like I said, California has laws that I think are probably going to be more protective of consumers in a lot of states. So I think it's going to be pretty jurisdiction specific. But yeah, if you're a person who's poor and struggling to get by and there's a dangerous guy that's been rolling and the gym continues to let them train there, maybe you go and train there and you let him grab up a submission and then you don't tap and you let him and that you let him hurt you. And you're just thinking, you know what? I don't care if my arm gets broke or hurt or whatever. I'll you know, I'm not using it anyway. Maybe I can squeeze a, you know, a half million dollar or a million dollar settlement. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that's a possibility. The role of an expert witness, how much does an expert witness typically make? Your thoughts on, on that in general? Expert witness fees for private, because obviously, you know, in public defense, court appointed experts get a lot less, but in, even in the private realm, expert fees will range anywhere from 200 to the most expensive expert I have ever heard of was somewhere in the 750 an hour range. I have never, now granted, I'm not in New York or California or somewhere like that where I know things are a little bit more expensive, but I have never heard of anybody ever charging a thousand dollars an hour or more for an expert witness fee. Never. And hey, you know, the way I look at it too is like, hey, capitalism, you know? Sure. If someone's willing sure. to pay. Sure. 
more yeah. power to you in a way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The importance of expert witnesses in these kind of matters. It's very important. The expert witnesses are allowed to provide opinions that normal lay witnesses are not allowed to provide. If it's going to assist the trier of fact, meaning the jury, if it's going to assist them in coming to their conclusion or understanding the facts. So, you know, normally you and I get called, you know, as a witness to a case or whatever. We're just asked what we saw, what we heard, what we did. You know, we're, we're asked for firsthand knowledge. We're not allowed to say, well, I think I think this happened. Or, I, you know, we're not allowed to offer an opinion. The law has created an exception with experts where when they have specialized knowledge that's beyond the knowledge of a, of a layperson to provide an opinion that can be a, of an assistance to the jury in understanding the rest of the evidence. I think in this case, yes, it's helpful for a jujitsu expert, which Henry Gracie absolutely is an expert in, in jujitsu, no question about that, to say that this move was done correctly or incorrectly. But to me, that's a slice of the bigger issue. The bigger issue is, and maybe they had a medical expert, I'm, I'm sure they did, but someone to say, doing this type of move in this manner, it was likely or foreseeable that it was going to result in this type of damage. Like maybe a neurosurgeon, a, a orthopedic surgeon, like someone that can explain the, the anatomy, skeletal and nervous system anatomy, and say with this amount of force, with this angle, this was absolutely something that created created a dangerous risk. And I don't believe Henry Gracie in any way, shape or form is qualified to talk about that. Now, if he wants to talk about whether the move was done correctly or not, have at it. I think he's more than qualified to say that. But for him to take that one step further and say the move done in this way is unreasonably dangerous, okay, based on what? What data have you looked at? What examples have you seen where a move like this was done in this way and you've seen what type of damage happened? That would be my question as the defense attorney is what are you saying other than just this move wasn't done in a textbook manner. That would be my question. That would be my argument and closing argument is I think they're making this testimony out to be more than maybe it really is. Couldn't the defense have come up with their own expert witnesses? Absolutely. And I believe they did hire Clark Gracie, uh, which was kind of interesting that they were related and they were both expert witnesses. I, well, I was but, about to say that. Uh, Why not hire another Gracie to all, yeah, you know, pay yeah, a death on they, the and, other side? Absolutely. And they did. And and I don't know, like I said, I don't know all the witnesses that were, were not called, but that would just, ideally, I would love to find, search the country and find a BJJ black belt who's also a trauma surgeon or orthopedic surgeon or something like that. That would be a really cool witness to have in that type of case, or just get the two expert witnesses to work in tandem. One who's like a world leading expert in, in, in neurosurgery, neurological injuries, and then your own expert in, in jiu-jitsu. Because I, if I was on the defense team, I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to argue that the move was done correctly. I think we all know the move was not done correctly. I, I, I don't think you get a lot of mileage out of trying to argue to the jury, oh no, may, maybe this was a, it's like, you're gonna lose credibility if you argue that. I think my argument would have been, yeah, the move was done incorrectly, but just doing a move incorrectly, that doesn't in and of itself mean that you're below an objective standard of reasonableness for how to conduct yourself during a rolling session. Once again, not saying that everybody has to come to that conclusion. That's just the argument that I would make if I was the defense team in that case. Hypothetically, I'm curious how you would have tried this case on both sides. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the, the plaintiffs obviously did a great job. I mean, as far from a professional standpoint, as a lawyer, you know, Good, good for them. They kept out, from what I hear, I haven't seen the pleadings, obviously, but from what I hear through multiple news sources, they were able to keep out his experience level. They were also able to keep out the fact that he signed a waiver, which baffles me, absolutely baffles me. And that's one of the issues I have with it. But I mean, they did that. That's effective. They called in a, an expert witness with a lot of star power. And let's just be honest, that goes a long way. You know, if the jury likes you, if the jury's like, oh, wow, I've heard of this Henry Gracie guy. Now I get to see, sit there and, and kind of see him 10, 15 feet away. That's really cool. I'm going to believe what he says because he's the expert in jiu-jitsu. That's, that's very effective. On the defense side, I def and, and they probably did. I'm not trying to Monday morning quarterback anybody, but I definitely would have made a big deal about the fact that he made $3,000 an hour. I would have I would have made a very big deal about that, and I would have made sure to hire an expert and paid them a lot less and be able to contrast how much my expert was paid versus how much he was paid and say, you know, realistically, 
What are you not going to say for $3,000 an hour? Hmm. Do you think they would have allowed that in terms of relevance? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you're always allowed to talk about the compensation of an expert witness uh, because it goes to their motive on the stand, motive, uh, propensity for truthfulness or untruthfulness. If I'm able to argue, look, ladies and gentlemen on the jury, I can't talk to the jury, obviously, during this, but I intimate or suggest to the jury what you guys are making in your day-to-day life and you're working hard and trying to put food on the table and everything. This guy's in here getting $3,000 an hour. Oh, and could you please show me your final bill to date or whatever? Show over $100,000 to get in here and say that a jujitsu move wasn't done correctly. I'm not saying that would have made a difference and I'm not saying they didn't do that, but I definitely would have made sure to put it out there. I think I would have really focused on Look, we're not disputing that the move was not done correctly, but jiu-jitsu and rolling and sparring is very fluid. And anybody will tell you that very rarely does a move go exactly the way it was demonstrated on BJJ Fanatics when you when you first watched it, you know, or, or you read a book. It's when you get to, you know, a high-level blue or purple belt or and above, a lot of times you start improvising moves. And that's very normal to be in a position and say, you know what? I think maybe I could hit a sweep from here. And I've never been taught this sweep before, but I'm going to try to do this sweep because it, it utilizes the concept of a sweep. And I'm, I'm going to try to do this. That's what rolling's all about. And to say that because a move was not done in a textbook fashion and because someone received an injury from that to immediately jump to the conclusion that that rises to the legal level of negligence. I'm just not sure about that. The details of this case, will we ever get all of them out to the public? Because it seems like this would be a fascinating case study for future, you know, legal students, lawyers in general, yeah. the general public, academy owners. This is important information, I think. Do you think we'll ever get the details of the, the entire case? So if there's an appeal and the appellate court actually decides to hear the case and they issue a written opinion then that written opinion will be public record and the written opinion will, will include the underlying facts of the case. And that'll be the public's easiest way to get access to the specific information. You can always make a public records request to the clerk of court where this case was tried and get the pleadings in the case. And depending on the state law, I don't know, you could even potentially try to order a transcript. That would be very expensive. And the transcript would probably be that thick of, of, of paper because uh, it would literally transcribe every single word that was said in open court during the course of the case. But if someone was truly curious, there's ways to go about getting the pleadings and, and that sort of thing, which would potentially also include uh, Henner's deposition testimony, which would have been his, his testimony that he provided before trial, which in a civil case, usually the trial is just a regurgitation of what you said during your deposition. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's the information's out there. Uh, what, how difficult it is to get it, that's a, a different story. So my understanding from various news sources uh, is that the judge did not allow the jury to hear the experience level of the student, but did permit them to talk about the belt. And we, we you know, we kind of touched on that and I explained why I didn't think that made a lot of sense. But also the judge ruled that evidence of a waiver that the person signed is not admissible. To me, the reason that's problematic is it undermines the validity of the verdict. Look, I believe in the jury system. I think the system works most of the time, certainly not always. As a de longtime defense attorney, I can tell you that there's a lot of problems with the system, but I can accept a jury's verdict if I believe that the jury heard all relevant evidence, was given the opportunity to hear everything that could bear on guilt or innocence, liability or no, not, li not liable. In this case, I just think there were a few things that the jury was not allowed to hear, which may have affected their verdict. The one thought of why they might not allow the waiver to come in is, well, you know, waivers can't waive gross negligence like we talked about. But I think that it would have been appropriate to allow them to hear evidence of the waiver and then for the jury to then decide, but if you find gross negligence, disregard the waiver. And the fact that they did not award punitive damages tells me that maybe they didn't find gross negligence. So if they didn't find gross negligence, then if they had heard about a waiver that would apply to non-gross negligence, that may have made a big outcome or that may have made a substantial difference in the outcome. And, and so I will be interested. I, I understand they're appealing. 
I hope they appeal. I hope the appellate court takes it up. And I'll be really, really interested to see that analysis. If they reverse, order a new trial, allow all that evidence to come in, say, look, if you're going to talk about his belt, you also have to talk about his experience. Because, I mean, your point is very well taken that I agree with 100%. The belts are so subjective and fluid that to sit there and present these belts as if it's a very quantifiable thing, I, I think misrepresents misrepresents things to the jury. If they do a new trial and the jury hears everything and they come back with the same verdict, okay, fine. You know what? I'll respect the jury's verdict. But the reason that I'm hesitant to accept the verdict is I just don't think they heard everything that they should have. I would assume for sure there is an appeal filed. So are yeah. you saying that it's potential that just because you request an appeal, it's potential that you will not get an appeal. Exactly. There are certain things, and that's every state is different, but uh, there are certain things that you have to be granted an appeal on. Death penalty sentences is one of them. And every state that I've practiced in, you're you're going to be heard on appeal if, if the state is, uh, has imposed the death sentence. But, you know, in California, an award of damages in a civil case, the appellate court looks at it, it might be what they call a discretionary as, a as opposed to a compulsory appeal. And if it's a discretionary appeal, the appellate court may look at it and go, you know what, there's just nothing here that really interests us. We don't, on the surface, see any major problems. It's not an issue of major public concern that needs to be resolved. We're not going to grant what they call certiori, or we're not going to grant an appeal in this case. Wow. So it's not a slam dunk. We're going to get an appeal. Correct. Yeah. You'll, wow. Yeah. You can file request for appeal, but whether you get, and sometimes they'll just deny your appeal without a hearing. So sometimes even in states where you're guaranteed to quote file an appeal, sometimes they might just read through everything that you've submitted to them and they can just what's called a summarily summary denial or summarily deny your appeal. And you're never given an explanation for why they denied it. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. That is wild. Well, Chet, I want to thank you so much for, you know, being so gracious with your time. This this was a really fascinating discussion, super important, I think, for the community uh, in terms of uh, academy owners, uh, students, uh, academy employees, those related to people who train jiu-jitsu and otherwise. This is incredibly fascinating. So, Chet, where, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? Yeah, so I've got a YouTube channel called The Combative Lawyer. I try to put out a little bit of content a couple times a week just on issues related to self-defense law, combatives and law and that sort of thing. I will be joining a firm this September in Greenville, South Carolina, where I'll be doing criminal defense with an emphasis on self-defense law and DUI defense. And so I'm licensed in South Carolina, North Carolina, and I'm inactive in Georgia and Florida. So, you know, that's that, that's where I'll be. So I highly recommend Chet's uh, content. Go check it out, you guys. We'll add links in all the show notes. And just a reminder, I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. Thanks for listening and watching out there. Remember to give us the nice review and share with your friends and everything else. Join the VIP stuff. And uh, Chet, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Pleasure being here. All right, guys. See you next time.